Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I get to navigate that world of art from a very practical, interesting, unusual perspective. So every day has been a brand new adventure. That was Janet Hicks, Vice President and Director of Licensing of the Artists' Rights Society. ARS is an alliance dedicated to safeguarding the intellectual property of the 122,000 artists, foundations, and illustrators it serves. Since 1987, ARS has licensed countless images of artworks for commercial, editorial, and educational use, and offered artists legal support, copyright protection, advocacy, and educational outreach. It interacts with museums, auction houses, scholars, publishers, galleries, advertising agencies, film and television production companies, educational and commercial entities, and is a member of CISAC, the Paris-based umbrella organization that oversees the activities of international copyright-collecting societies. ARS has reciprocal relationships with 44 sister societies worldwide, guaranteeing expert copyright knowledge and protection around the globe. Artists are navigating the pandemic with the rest of society and I'm curious what some of the top concerns you're hearing from artists might be. Artists, like so many other people that are living through this pandemic, are wondering how they're going to survive in general. Artists are a very vulnerable community. The average income for artists is usually around 45000 a year, with probably 75% of those people making even less than $10,000 a year for their artistic output. So when you think about that and you think about the fact that a lot of these artists are not going to be covered by any sort of government funding, it's a very vulnerable time for artists. And especially so when this is a moment when beauty and content, I think, are valued more than ever. Everyone wants to watch something fantastic on Netflix or look at beautiful images online while they're locked up in their homes. And those are creations from artists. So I feel like it's a very difficult situation for everyone, but artists may be in one of the more vulnerable positions because this is a time in which people really flock to those creatives for content. And we've seen a lot of museums in recent weeks putting more and more works from their collections on view. Has that led to more requests for clearances? Yes, and we're working with a great number of museums in order to make that easier for them to get to their collections online, to help them amplify their exhibits through social media or other outlets, to make sure that people get to see work that is in their collection during the shutdown. Uh, but also to make sure that our artists get compensated. How did you get started in the field of artists' rights? Well, I did start at Artists' Rights Society in 1998, 22 years ago. Just coming from a regular museum background, I had a brief stay at the Studio Museum in Harlem, came at it from a master's degree in art history, so I didn't really have the copyright background that some people have in this industry. More of an art history and interest. And I'll be honest, it started out as just a regular job and something that I found interesting because my work at the Studio Museum, for example, had to do with putting together publications and getting those clearances for publications for artwork. So that's how I became aware of Artists' Rights Society. And over the years, because every request is so interesting and unusual and 
you run the gamut from somebody's life work as a scholar to something very commercial advertising or some sort of merchandise use. I get to navigate that world of art from a very practical, interesting, unusual perspective. So every day has been a brand new adventure, and I, I really enjoy that. For our listeners, this is a world that may not be as well known. So I'm hoping you could give us a thumbnail sketch of the current state of U.S. copyright law as it affects reproducing images of artworks that are not yet in the public domain, meaning that they're still under the control of the artist or her heirs. So in a thumbnail sketch, once your work is created, it is copyrighted. It's important for artists to realize that their artwork has value as a reproduction right from that very first beginning. And you can control that, you can monetize that, and you can amplify that, especially uh, for, say, online use. I feel like artists really need to have an active role in the stewardship of their own copyright. And this is something that one can do now, which maybe historically has been a little more difficult because U.S. copyright law prior to 1976 was a bit more complicated and confusing, but now the protection is, is a lot clearer. But 1976 is a lifetime ago. Because of the internet and distribution of digital images, much has changed since 76. There's a contrarian view sometimes expressed by academics and educators. Why don't you just let high-resolution images of all artworks just float freely on the internet? How do you answer that? Sure. Many institutions have released high-resolution images, many museums. Most of these images are public domain images. A good rule of thumb is a work is protected for 70 years after the death date of the artist. That is both in the U.S. and worldwide. That's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about is a work protected or is it not when you see it online or if you need to get permission. So these institutions who have released high-res images, I do feel like most of them are public domain images. Very rarely are they going to be images that are still protected because they understand that additional uses like that require permission. But there are sites, say like ArtStore, that will put high-resolution images behind a paywall or an access wall that give access to those scholars and academics that might need high-resolution images for their purposes. And this is something that would historically fall under fair use, which I want to talk about in a sort yeah. of general way, too. We recognize fair use. We at Artist Rights Society understand that fair use, as a tenant of that copyright law, allows certain editorial, educational criticism to occur that an academic or scholar might put forth in a book or journal. And we recognize that. We issue licenses that are free of charge for many of these uses that we feel fall under fair use. But then there's also uses that we would find do not fall under fair use. And that's going to be far more commercial uses. And when these occur, then become more involved. But what I want to be clear on is this, is that we don't see there to be a conflict or dichotomy between us and academics and educators because we see things the same way. For the most part, we just need to sort of review and make sure that what we're talking about for fair use is something that we can all agree is a completely scholarly endeavor. 
visual artists then have a degree of protection from the 1976 copyright law. The world of music and the other worlds in which performing artists, as opposed to visual artists, perform has a different regime around compensation. Can you walk through the difference between how visual artists and performing artists might be compensated for reproduction of their work? Sure. Well, I do think that there is a inherent inequity of how visual artists receive residuals or royalties from their work as opposed to musicians or authors. If we talk about a creative output, say from an author's book or musician's song, when somebody appreciates that, when somebody makes a purchase of a song by a musician, that artist is going to be compensated for that use. Whereas from a visual work, there is the single original work, often the painting or sculpture, and then there's the reproduction rates of that. And it's not really one-to-one if you compare that with a song because the artwork is only, there's only one, and to make a copy of it is a very different and much reduced in price because it's a poster or the work on a coffee mug. Whereas the song is the same to every single person who buys that song. So where the difference is, is that artists are not fully compensated for the value and importance of their works as a author or musician might be. So we're at Artist Rights Society always trying to work to remedy that inequity. This comes from licensing your work, making sure you're compensated fairly for works when it's reproduced, and also expanding other aspects of copyright law to benefit artists, such as hopefully some things that we'll talk about later in this podcast, the Resale Royalty Act, the Artist Museum Partnership Act, and others. What are some of the ways that copyright protection of artists have changed over the last generation? In 1987, Artist Rights Society was founded at the behest of our French sister organization, ADAGP. Our president is Ted Fader, who was running an image bank at the time, still is, and was asked to start a rights society in the U.S. and has obviously been greatly successful with it and has really been instrumental in a lot of the copyright changes that occurred in those first years of ARS. One of the biggest ones was restoration of copyright to foreign artists, which occurred in 96, which gave copyright back to artists that were foreign when those works were in the public domain due to the complexities of U.S. copyright law. So this restored copyright to artists like Picasso and Matisse in the U.S. when prior to that, their works were more widely used. This also was in harmony with restoration for other artists too, such as musicians as well. Then a few years later, there was the Sonny Bono copyright extension that was in 98, which extended copyright from 50 years after the death of the artist to 70 years. This harmonizes the term to the Berne Convention and puts us on par with most European and other societies for having the same copyright extension term. So that makes us easier to work with on an international level. And then that same year, there was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which tried to navigate what was then an emerging digital landscape 
for protecting artwork online, protecting music online, a whole host of things. The DMCA is currently under review in the Copyright Office, actually next week or June 2nd, there will be a hearing on the topic. There is a call for revising this to make it so that it is better for artists and easier for artists to manage what are often multiple infringements online. Janet, the Copyright Act is under constant review and debate among various protagonists. What are your biggest concerns for rights holders as commercial platforms are growing, they're consolidating, and they're lobbying lawmakers? Well, as I mentioned, the DMCA is under review as we speak. So that is something that I think is very important, especially because when we talk about these commercial platforms, we're talking about agencies like perhaps Facebook or Instagram, that's a lot of user-generated content, which is difficult for organizations to monitor and monetize because it is created by users and not by the entity itself. What we're hoping for is something in the future that maybe is based on the new EU directive, which is opening the door for our sister organizations to engage in overall general agreements with commercial platforms like Facebook or Instagram to offer them a general license for content on that. So this would be an amazing step forward. We would welcome this in the U.S. as well, however that might work, to work with those entities that are presenting that content in order to get our artists paid from them rather than having to contact individual users, which we wouldn't want to do and wouldn't see appropriate anyway. Do you have adversaries in or outside the art world or just people who don't understand copyright law? Most people fundamentally understand that people should be paid for work that they do. So when we talk about adversaries outside of the art world and people who don't understand copyright law, they certainly understand this common idea that if you do work, you should get paid for it. And I think that in Europe and other countries, there is a different culture about the value that an artist provides. And they completely understand that artists, especially visual artists, should be compensated for the work that they do. And maybe there's a bit of an attitude here in the U.S. that there's a sort of starving artist mentality or idea that artists should be grateful for exposure or grateful for being part of something that brings more attention to their work. But I'm hoping that with a change in culture and attitude about the value of artists, that people will approach this as something that's very practical and basic, that we should be compensating people for doing the work anytime we use the work. And that's really an American issue to some extent, right? Because we are a bit out of step with the global community in the provision of moral rights or the droit moral of artists. Yes, we have VARA, which is the Visual Artist Rights Act, which does provide some moral rights. That was from 1990. That allows for artists to disown or disavow the work that they've created if it's been modified or altered or destroyed in some way. The rights that exist in Europe for artists are multiple, not only these stronger moral rights, which gives artists more protection over their work, but also resale rights, 
They also have reprographic rights, cable retransmission rights, private copying rights, which is basically rights for visuals that may appear on cell phones that are charged to those cell phone, uh, cell phone company providers. I agree with you. We're out of step with the rest of the world as far as copyright protection is concerned. We have many ways to improve, and I hope that we get there. And one of the ways in which we look at artists' rights in our country versus others is that we lack an artist resale royalty. Can you talk a bit about the arguments for and against a resale royalty? Sure. We have been championing a resale royalty at Artist Rights Society since almost our inception, but really working strongly with Representative Nadler on the Art Act, as it's been called, since 2011, to just review what our resale royalty bill provides for artists. It is a percentage back to artists for the secondary sale of their work. If you sell a work for a few hundred dollars, and then it becomes quite famous and resells for several thousand or hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps at auction, perhaps 20 years after you sold it, then you will be entitled to a percentage back, 5%, on that secondary sale, which accounts for the hard work you've done in your career in order to get that work to be that valuable. If I would talk about how it is sustainable, it's a very small percentage. It's 5%. If you look at auction house premiums, those are usually 24, 25% for sales at auction houses. So this would be a small fraction of what the auction house might get for the secondary sale. And there's been studies that show that this benefits both artists that are selling for high prices as well as artists that are selling for middle of the road prices. This is something that was enacted in the UK more recently than other countries. In, in France, it's been around for 100 years, but in the UK, it was just put into effect in the past 10 or 15 years. And it's shown that a lot of mid-career artists, a lot of up-and-coming artists are still benefiting from 2,000, 3,000 pounds a year that goes straight back into their economy, straight back into their work, straight back into materials. It's a really valuable resource for them. The arguments against it, I think that they're insignificant insofar as the percentage, again, is so low. But a lot of people would see this as an additional fee to the buyer, to the auction house, which is true. But I think most people would find this so insignificant and for such a good cause to go back to artists that I'm hard-pressed to find this to be a compelling argument against. And the current iteration of the bill excludes works that are sold privately. That's to say this is for auction results. Right. The current version is auction houses only. It is capped as well, too. So our current version, I believe, will have a cap of 50,000. So works that are millions of dollars will yield high percentage value to an auction house, but yet only a cap of 50000 to the artist. So it's definitely metered in some way. Right. And we currently exclude galleries and private sales from this. There's another long-languishing bill in Congress that would give artists the right to deduct the fair market value of an artwork donated to a museum. What's the objection to that becoming law that you've heard? Well, that's the Artist Museum Partnership Act that we have supported for many years. 
Patrick Leahy, I think, first introduced that a few years back. And I know that John Lewis just reintroduced that into the House last year, looking for congressional support on that at this time. But we have supported any and all who have advocated for this bill. Basically, the current law is that one can deduct only the cost of materials if an artist themselves is donating a work to a museum or institution. Obviously, this is a deterrent for an artist that has a high-value work that they want to see in a major museum because they are not going to get the same benefit from donating that work as, say, a person who owned the work and it has the same value. They'd be able to donate it for the same tax benefit write-off. So I don't think there's much opposition on this. It's just in our current political climate, it's difficult to get certain bills in the arts push forward. And yet, I remember years ago, I spoke about this in Congress. It is such a fractional amount for the Treasury. There's no real hit. It was scored by the Congressional Budget Office as not having an impact on our Treasury. So I'm hoping, as you are, that it will get some traction afresh. Another segment of our art world is growing, which is the world of artist-endowed foundations. What are these organizations, and what role are they playing in the art world today? Well, the artist endowed foundations also run the gamut between small estates or larger foundations, much like the list of artists we represent in general, some being small and just starting out, others being far more established and robust. There are huge benefit to the art world in general, not unlike, let's say, the Resale Royalty Act that I was talking about, where that money generated for artists goes back into their artistic community. A lot of these artists and down foundations are designed to do that same thing. So their money that they receive for licensing will go back to grants or other, other funds for artists as well, or to sponsor museum exhibitions, or do more scholarship on the artists that they represent as well. And I think that it's very important for those artists and down foundations to realize that copyright and exercising those reproduction rights could provide a substantial revenue stream to then feed to those other types of uses that are important for the legacy of your artists, such as creating a catalog raisonné, the creation of your own website, the maintenance of your website, the creation of grants for artists. It's a great opportunity for artists to amplify the legacy of their artists by becoming more involved and organized and practical about their rights. You get a lot of requests for clearances. How would you say the majority of those are skewed? Are they for commercial use, for educational use, for editorial use? I would say most of the uses we receive are editorial, but we do receive a great deal of commercial uses. I personally work a lot of TV and film, which is experiencing a decline right now during COVID, but I imagine that's going to ramp up quite a lot after when production starts to come back into play because that need for content will still be quite high. But it really just runs the range and it could change weekly by what's important. During this lockdown situation, as I've mentioned before, we're receiving far more requests for online use, both from educators who want to put course material online 
to museums who are trying to get their collection seen more now that their doors are shuttered. In film and television, what would a normal request be to allow? In other words, is it a painting on a wall in the midst of a film or television series? What's the request that's made and what's the way that you honor that? There are many productions that are art heavy. Those types of uses that, let's say an episodic TV show or, or even a film that wants to convey a sense of luxury, a, an attitude, a style, they will turn to contemporary art to really convey a mood without saying anything about who these characters are and their sense of taste and style. And that's often the case for the artwork that we're being requested for TV and film. But then also we have artists that we represent that have works on the street, public works that often get picked up for on-site location shots, and those also make it into TV and film uses because they'll be in the background or they'll be referred to in some way in TV production. So I would say most times it's, it is background. Often it's specifically chosen. Sometimes it's because it's on-site. And sometimes it's used in a much broader way, a bigger way, a more thematic way. Is there a gray area when a camera is panning and it doesn't stop long on a work of art? How do you adjudicate those uses? Well, we will license anything you would like to license for our <laughs> member artists. So I think a lot of film and TV acknowledge that if it's recognizable, it should be cleared and they would require that. Well, Janet, thank you so much for making time today to clear up some of my misapprehensions and <laughs> clarify a bit about the field artist rights. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. We've been speaking today with Janet Hicks, Vice President and Director of Licensing of the Artist Rights Society. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.